Hello and welcome to the Science AAAS webinar, part of our series addressing important, timely and sometimes controversial topics that impact us all, but with a particular focus on the sciences. Today our focus is turning to graduate education for students in science, technology, engineering and mathematics, collectively called the STEM fields. In particular, we are going to be leaning on our expert panel to help us understand the current challenges being faced by STEM educational institutions and how we might address these today and in the future. My name is Sean Sanders and I'm Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science. Finally, I'd like to thank Foundation Ibsen for sponsoring today's event and this series. Now, on to today's discussion and our fabulous in-studio panel with me here today. Uh, first, I'd like to welcome Dr. Sherilyn Black from Duke University, where she is the Associate Vice Provost for Faculty Advancement and an Assistant Professor of the Practice of Medical Education. Next to Sherilyn is Dr. William Tate, who is Dean and Vice Provost for Graduate Education at Washington University in St. Louis. He is also Professor of Arts and Sciences and directs the Center for the Study of Regional Competitiveness in Science and Technology. And our third guest today is uh, Ms. Maria Dahlberg from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine, where she is study director for the consensus study on the science of effective mentoring in science, technology, engineering, medicine and mathematics. Thank you all so much for being here today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, as usual, I'm going to let you introduce yourself to the audience, say a little bit about who you are, what you do and what you bring to today's event. So Sherilyn, we'll start with you. Well, first of all, Sean, thank you so much for inviting me to be on the panel. I'm really excited to have this discussion with everyone. Uh, so as you mentioned, I'm Associate Vice Provost for Faculty Advancement at Duke University, which means that I work with faculty in a variety of ways, uh, all topics relating to their promotion and advancement, but also thinking more broadly about what they need for development and to be successful in their own careers. Uh, I am also, as you mentioned, I'm an Assistant Professor of the Practice in Medical Education in the School of Medicine at Duke. And previously, uh, I served as the director of the Office of Biomedical Graduate Diversity, which was an office in the School of Medicine that dealt with all of the diversity and inclusion initiatives for the basic sciences. Um, in addition to that, I've also done things like be the co-principal investigator of an IMSD program. So I have a lot of experience working with students, a lot of experience working with faculty, and a really specific interest in topics relating to diversity and inclusion. So I'm looking mm -hmm. forward to the conversation today. Fantastic. Thank you, Sherilyn. Thank you. And uh, Bill, we'll, start, we'll have you next. Great, and thank you for the invitation. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you all. Uh, in my capacity as Dean of the Graduate School and Vice Provost for Graduate Education at Washington University, about a five-year run in that capacity, uh, I'm responsible for about 7,000 uh, graduate and professional students, 1,800 of them are PhD students, about 70% of them are in STEM fields, and we can't keep up with the number of uh, STEM-related master's degree programs, but mm -hmm. I'm sure we'll talk about that <laughs> uh, during our conversation. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you, Bill. And Maria? Hi, uh, I am honored to be part of this panel. I'm really excited today. Um, I have the pleasure of serving as a study director for the Board on Higher Education's Workforce and the Committee on Women in Science, Engineering, and Medicine mm -hmm. at the National Academies. Uh, we work on issues having to deal with uh, workforce development, diversity, equity, inclusion in the scientific enterprise, and uh, post-secondary education. Um, and we sort of look at things from about the 30,000-foot level, and so we're, I'm really excited to have conversations about how those are implemented and engaged with in variety of levels. Mm -hmm. 
Great, thank you. And we are definitely going to be getting to that, um, <laughs> going sure from the 30,000 to the 100-foot yeah. level, right? So, so where I thought we would start is just looking at the current state of graduate education. And I've jotted down a few questions here. Um, what is being done well? What is being done poorly? And what are the most critical challenges? So, Bill, maybe we'll start with you. What, what do you see in your position as being done well at your university and, and maybe even across other universities? So when we look at outcome data, the AAU has a survey, for example, they uh, survey PhD students when they complete. At our institution, what I'm seeing, and I thought I, that I, my big concern was mentoring, mm -hmm. but what I'm seeing is that students are pretty satisfied with their mentors with respect to the academic aspect of it, the research process. They feel like they're getting good feedback and the experience is pretty positive. I think where, and you didn't ask me this, but where their concerns uh, mm -hmm. are related to their uh, career development and professional mm -hmm. development outside of the academy. Mm -hmm. Great. Sharon? Yeah, I would probably agree with a lot of that. I think that over the last few years, I've actually seen some positive changes in the areas around careers. I think a lot of institutions are becoming more open to the possibility of providing support and resources and training for different types of careers while students are going through their graduate training, but I think that one area that we really still need to lean into quite a bit is thinking about the overall climate of graduate training, thinking about uh, the, the nature of relationships between mentors and mentees, mm -hmm. thinking about power dynamics, thinking about the mental health challenges. So I think that while we're thinking a lot about some of the academic components, some of the aspects that are um, sort of creating the culture and the environment need more work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's great that you touched on some of those. We, we're definitely going to come back to them, especially the mentorship side, yeah. which I know Maria is definitely <laughs> going to be able to talk to. So any, any comments, uh, Maria, from you on, on what you think is being done well, what you're seeing from the research that you're doing? Yeah, I think that there are a lot of institutions, there's a lot of research being done out there that is working to, to develop different structures to, to push uh, new ideas. And I think that there really is um, a sea change going on right now across institutions. Um, and we're starting to see some of those outcomes come to, to bear. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think that there's still a lot of work that needs to get done to get this to be a standardized rather than an exceptional practice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, in, in preparing for this, this webinar, I was reading the uh, National Academy of Sciences um, report on STEM graduate education in the 21st century. And I know, Sherilyn, you obviously know a lot about that. Um, and there were a lot of, imp I feel, important points made in that, that report, um, mm -hmm. um, which I will put into the show notes so the, the audience can take a look at that as well. Yeah. Um, one of the things that, that you touched on, actually, I think we've all touched on, is the cultural side, yeah. you know, cultural changes. So can you talk a little bit about, about that, what you found? And I'm particularly interested, and we'll come to Bill, in seeing how those cultural changes that are talked about in the report can actually be implemented. Yeah. Well, you know, when we worked on that consensus study, a lot of what we talked about was thinking about the experience of graduate students. So mm -hmm. not just thinking specifically about, you know, what are the curricular changes, what are the ways that we need to be more aligned with funding agencies, but really what is the experience like for the students on the ground? Mm -hmm. And a lot of that goes back to very fundamental questions like what does it actually mean to even get a PhD? What does it mean sort of across, the the, across an institution or across the, the nation to think about what that what those qualifications should be. And so when we think about combining all of the aspects relating to the curricular side of things, what the expectations are for research, 
we really need to think about the overlay of what is the actual student experience like. So mm -hmm. we talked mm -hmm. a lot and heard from a lot of different resources while we were developing the report about uh, the way that students feel that their career ideas are received by their advisors. Mm -hmm. If they're doing things like individual development plans and other um, sort of life programming initiatives to be able to consider what they will be um, designed for in the future. Thinking about when they're in the lab, are they getting experiences to develop the skills that are extremely important relating to their professionalism, such as collaboration skills, um, interdisciplinarity skills, the ability to work with all different types of colleagues, making sure their needs are met, mm -hmm. making sure that they have strong relationships with their own advisors and that they're sort of doing what a lot of people refer to as mentoring up. Uh, thinking about hmm. how to mitigate the power dynamics so students can have more agency and be uh, more involved in their own in environment. So mm -hmm. we really thought a lot about how all of those different factors impinge on the fundamental curricular structures of graduate education. And I think that, like I said, there's a lot of work to be done. And obviously overlaying a lot of that, thinking about intersectionality with underrepresented individuals, with gender, mm -hmm. um, with gender identity, things of that nature, um, all of those play into how students experience the scientific enterprise. Mm -hmm. Great, Bill? Well, I signed a paperwork for students who don't make it. Mm -hmm. And the number one reason, um, you can dice it and slice it a lot of ways, but the number one reason students end up leaving is communication. Mm -hmm. it, mm -hmm. Fundamentally, the communication breaks down and that comes in the climate. Yeah. There's something that happens in certain programs where communication fundamentally breaks down. I've seen where um, a mentor is assigned early in programs, those students tend to have greater success than when the department or program says, well, we have a, a strategy of not assigning mentors for a semester or two. But really what ends up happening is the superstar student really already has a mentor that, and they're being cultivated early, mm. and the other students are being ignored in a way. That's sort of the wink, wink of it all. Mm. And those students tend to struggle and they often come from backgrounds that are misaligned with what people really expect. We may, we may get mm -hmm. into that, but if they're a first generation student and don't really understand what might be happening in a research project, or they may be a student from a, a, a racial background that's not aligned with the de dominant racial background in the department, they tend to be isolated. And once mm -hmm. you're isolated in science and the communication starts to break down, generally speaking, it doesn't work out too well. Mm -hmm. That's a big concern I have. Mm -hmm. So do you feel that the onus is on the department to find a mentor, or is it, or is it on the student to identify who they'd like to be mentored? Well, I think a best practice should be you shouldn't admit a student unless someone raises their hand in the department and, say, and they say, I would want to mentor that student mm -hmm. if they come here. And it's, at some point early in the process, they should have, even if it's not going to be in the lab, they should have someone in that department who's assigned to them to help them navigate what's happening before them. It shouldn't just be a document on a website that the student's trying to read and make sense of. They need a human being who really understands the process and can help them walk through how to do it. Mm -hmm. The departments that do that really do well. Mm -hmm. And those that don't, um, they just have far higher attrition rates. Mm -hmm. So I guess we've, we've got into the mentorship topic, so let's continue. Well, that, it, it, you if you're know. talking PhD yeah. education, there yeah. is nothing else. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. So Maria, let me, let me come to you. I know this is right within your, your it ballpark. Is. So. Yeah, so uh, we've been spending about <coughs> 22 months now uh, doing a deep dive into the science behind mentorship, 
how do you uh, develop and engage effective mentorship practices and relationships, what are the, the key behaviors. And uh, by the time that this webinar airs, uh, the report will be public and uh, p individuals can read deeper into it um, at nap.edu. Um, for now, I would stress that there is a difference, and we should all be cognizant of that difference, between being an advisor, being a PI, and being a mentor. Um, and I think that there's, there's something there's a lot more likely to have, in graduate education, uh, an individual stepping up and saying, I'm willing to bring this person into my laboratory or bring this person onto my research project. But that doesn't necessarily equate to someone actually coming in and having a mentoring relationship. Um, and so that has to be taken into account. And I think this comes back to what was being talked about between the culture that we're trying to develop and the climate of our, our institutions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, there was a report that we released in June of 2018, um, bear with me here, on uh, the sexual harassment of women in mm -hmm. uh, academic science, engineering, and medicine. And that report very clearly laid out the difference between culture and climate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And culture is our idealized understanding of what we're striving for and climate is what is actually experienced. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that there's a lot of what we're talking about actually hinges on some of those differences. We have a culture in academia of supporting, of engaging, of being student-centric, of trying to uh, use the graduate system to both enhance our research base and enhance the workforce that we're developing. But we don't necessarily have a climate that aligns with that. Mm -hmm. So in this case, maybe climate change is a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. Mm -hmm. And it might be something that we're all working towards. All right. <laughs> so something that, that I remember being mentioned in the uh, STEM graduate education report mm -hmm. was uh, talking about multiple me mentors. Yes. So not depending just on your PI for everything. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe, Sherilyn, can you talk about the ideas behind that and how that might help students? Yeah, so we heard from a number of institutions, and I know even at Duke we have uh, different graduate programs that approach this in different ways, but really the idea of pulling from the expertise of different people. So, you know, like when we were talking at dinner last night, one of the things I mentioned was, uh, you know, I'm a social neuroscientist, so if I wanted mm -hmm. to do an immunology experiment, I would go to an immunologist at Duke, that would probably be my buddy Mike Kringle, and I would <laughs> ask him questions about whatever my experiment needed to be about because he's an mm -hmm. expert in that area. I think what I hear a lot from faculty and from a lot of my colleagues is that they're interested in supporting students as much as they can, but they don't always know how. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as faculty, we love being experts and we love knowing that we are arbiters of knowledge and that we are really well equipped to do what we need to do. And so uh, I think that the idea of pulling from expertise from different people, if you know that, you know, colleague A is really, you know, well versed in a certain topic, making sure that they can contribute to your students' development as well. Mm -hmm. um, but, but with that being said, I want to go back to something that Bill said that I think is relevant here, which is that we should make sure we have a system where faculty can get all of the support that they need to do these roles. So it's not so much, you know, by thinking about multiple mentors that it's, well, I don't know anything about mental health, so I'm going to pass that off to this person. Mm -hmm. It is, how do I best develop my own skills in this area to make sure that I either know who to refer to, know how to support a student in the moment, 
or know how to engage in the best practices for myself to make sure I'm most equipped to support my trainees. Mm -hmm. So it's got to be a combination of both. But, but I think that more and more institutions are pulling from multiple mentors and they're thinking about how to raise the bar in that way so students can get a very holistic training experience. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing this, Bill? Um, I am, and I think that it's extremely important. We, we, we didn't mention, for example, that some effective programs use peer mentors, mm -hmm. and they really mm -hmm. help the students get through mm -hmm. qualified exams and help them navigate yeah. the process while they're also honing their skills to be good mentors when they get academic positions right. or positions outside the yeah. academy where they have to be in a leadership role. Mm -hmm. I think that's important um, with the expansion of career options that students have you are often are finding someone who's maybe not a faculty member mm -hmm. who's serving as a career mentor in helping the student navigate and think about what the marketplace looks like both in the academy and outside of the academy. Many deans are setting up those kinds of programs across America right now and or partnering with career centers in ways that career centers heretofore haven't done because typically they've been organized for undergraduate education or professional master's degree programs. Mm. When you start talking about PhD students who are really specialized and have a lot of skills, um, having a career mentor help you understand what those skills are that might be applicable in the marketplace is very important. And every faculty member can't do that. They haven't all come from the, uh, they haven't all had an uh, experience outside of the academy. And so I see more and more of that happening um, as students are taking advantage of the ecology that's being cre created on campus. And I could yeah. also add too that, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but one of the benefits of multiple mentors is navigating power dynamics. So there yeah. are quite a few students who just are not sure about what they want to do, how they want to get there, or yeah. where they want to go. And they're starting to figure that out and navigate it as they progress through their training. And so a big part of this is maybe you don't want to talk to your advisor about this right. because you feel that you know they have so much power and authority over your academic progression and maybe there's going to be some sort of bias that creeps in according to what your career mm -hmm. choice is. And so another benefit of having multiple mentors is that you can get an expert voice from someone who might not have direct authority over your academic progression. And so. Right. I think that that's one more benefit in addition to all the others that we mentioned. Right. Great. So l let me play devil's advocate. I'm a, f I'm a faculty member and you know, I'm writing grants. Uh, I have a lot of students um, that I need to mentor. I have experiments I need to oversee. Mm -hmm. And now you're asking me to do all these other things. You know, I, now I have to be aware of mental health issues and career issues. How, how do they do that? How, how can you help? the faculty understand what is needed and get the training that they, I'm sure, want because they want to help their students. Yeah. So, I mean, I can speak specifically for what we're doing at Duke. So as part of my role as Associate Vice Provost, we have a variety of different series that we run for faculty specifically on these topics. One of the initiatives that I head up in our office is called the Faculty Advancement and Success Series. And every mm -hmm. month we have a different workshop that's ranging from topics to uh, you know, how to support students. We do workshops on inclusive teaching and learning. We do workshops on navigating power dynamics with students, on how to um, optimize your mentoring models. Um, you know, all these sorts of topics that are relevant to their own um, advancement as faculty. Because, of course, the more well-being and the better mentor you are, um, you know, the more well-being you have in your research group, the better it is for everyone involved in all the productivity. So we really try to say, 
for asking anything of our faculty, we provide resources for them to learn how to accomplish those goals. Mm -hmm. uh, I also think that there are a lot of really wonderful national resources um, for mentoring. The National Research Mentoring Network is something that has really sort of exploded in terms of providing resources nationally. Also, uh, the Simmer Institute at the University of Wisconsin, which is headed by Chris Fund and Leonel Adams, is something that has a lot of resources about mentoring options and different things relating to teaching and learning that faculty can take advantages of. So mm -hmm. there really are all sorts of, of really wonderful uh, national resources and local resources that faculty can take. I think what it comes down to is the leadership, and I think that this is part of what you were touching on earlier, really emphasizing that this is important and it's something that mm -hmm. should be prioritized. Uh, you know, not just something as an add-on uh, but really central to the core foundation of what graduate training is supposed to look like and really help the faculty to see the value in it. Because I agree, mm -hmm. everyone's extremely busy and uh, thinking about how to ask people to engage in extra topics like this means that we have to do some heavy lifting on the institutional side as well. Right. right. I'll, I'll say that, I mean, across the reports that we release in the post-secondary space, right, we're seeing over and over again that the incentives to have faculty engage in different aspects of their workload. So whether that is mentoring, whether that's effective teaching practices, uh, whether that is uh, developing an inclusive culture in their, in their local environments. Um, the role that leadership can play, the role that promotion guidelines can play, mm -hmm. right? All of these things do come from, from high up as well as from just faculty intrinsic understanding mm -hmm. of what's going on. Um, I'm not sure that I agree with your original premise that all faculty want to just do this inter internally. <laughs> um, I was however, trying to be kind. Yeah, <laughs> I, I will say that um, there, there, is a, there is a way of reframing a lot of, of these items so that it's not an add-on to what is already being done, but an improvement on their current process. Mm -hmm. um, I think Sherilyn was getting at this a little bit of, you know, if you improve your mentoring structures, your mentoring engagements, uh, the research out there supports the fact that that will probably improve your, your productivity in your laboratory. improve your productivity, it, yeah. Um, and that there are you will end up having healthier, better communities to engage with. And that's something that you should be striving for, that you should actually want. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, so I, I'd really like to pick up on something that you were talking about, and that's incentives. Yeah. Because uh, I think that's really important, uh, especially in the context of changing cultures mm -hmm. and changing climates. So maybe, Bill, let, I'll, I'll come to you. The way that academic advancement is incentivized currently uh, seems to focus more on that academic track, getting papers published. You know, so you want people in your lab who are going to help you get your papers, that helps you get grants, etc. Um, what is what is wrong with that? How can we change that? Is there a way to incentivize uh, faculty to do some of the things we were just talking about? That's part of their academic advancement. Uh, so it's not just about academic achievement or outside. Um, accolades. You want the honest answer? <laughs> Absolutely. No. So, so, all right. We're measuring 
the nation's top 50 national universities in a very specific way. Mm -hmm. And I'm in a $700 million research expenditure per year. Duke is very similar, maybe more, maybe less. We're right there together. In that environment, um, it is very clear what the gold standard is. Mm -hmm. I think, let's take the mental health issue. I think, you know, I'm a psychiatric epidemiologist, so I have to attack the system the way it's currently organized. Mm -hmm. And I start with awareness. I want it to be known that there's no stigma related to any mental health issue. We have literal campaigns for that. I start with who is the first line of defense on a mental health issue? Is it the faculty member who's not really in the lab all the time? No, it's not. Actually, mm -hmm. it's the administrative assistant sitting in the front of the department. Hmm. And we train our administrative assistants on how to identify certain types of things that are happening with students. They're not coming. They look sad. You know, the whole gamut, we work with psychologists to work with them so that they can get the student into some resources. They can let the faculty member know who's really operating more like a CEO hmm. that you have someone who's here who needs assistance. We know how to get that going. We educate the director of graduate studies. They have, they, now that is their job in most, most universities. Mm -hmm. So they need to be able to understand that and you wanna provide them all the resources. So what we try to do is work around the ecology of it all, knowing that that incentive is not really gonna change much. Mm -hmm. I, I don't see how it changes in the nation's top 50, maybe in top 100 national universities. It should change. I'd love to see it happen. But I haven't seen a tenure case where that was actually brought up. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we have to really build our models based upon what the ecology looks like in a way. And there is change in that. It's empowering another set of people to actually make a difference. And there are some faculty who care. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the preponderance of them are CEO-like. And so they're not, really, they're not really there for that. Do you want your postdocs to really have a handle on that? We ignore mm -hmm. them all the time, but chances are in a laboratory scenario, they're really in charge. Right. And they should have that kind of expertise. Mm. I, 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 can't, I can't emphasize we have to work with what we have, especially on mental health. Mm -hmm. And, and I would probably add to that that I think that this is where funders play a critical role if mm -hmm. you're talking about incentives. Mm -hmm. So I can give two quick examples here. The first one is what NIGMS has done with T32 requirements as it pertains mm -hmm. to having faculty uh, have to get engaged in mentor trainings, which I think is wonderful. And I think that mm. that's really getting the conversation going in a way that I've never seen before mm. around graduate admissions, around student outcomes, around even doing things together like mentoring compacts and individual development plans. If faculty want to be appointed to these T32s, they have to go through mm -hmm. these developmental opportunities. And so it's not just about this is a moral or ethical thing, it's the right thing to do. It's that, no, this is going to be a direct you know, influence on your ability mm -hmm. to be as productive as you want to be with your research because you won't be able to matriculate students. Mm -hmm. So that's one way that I, could, I really see funders really taking a leading step there. Another um, is a group like Howard Hughes. And so myself and several colleagues um, are currently working with the Gilliam Fellows Program there. That's a highly competitive fellowship for underrepresented students who um, largely are going probably onto the faculty track, but some of them will not. 
uh, but really it's about promoting leadership skills and um, really high levels of excellence in these students. So it's a very prestigious uh, fellowship and the faculty know that. Uh, what Hughes has done is say, if you would like for your student to receive this fellowship once it's awarded, the faculty are also evaluated for their capacity as mentors and they engage in a year-long mentor training with myself wow. and several colleagues in order for their student to receive that fellowship. So they've taken a very bold step yeah. and said, uh, we really value and um, the idea around strong mentorship, particularly thinking about cultural awareness lenses in mentoring spaces and we are making sure the students are in the best possible environment to be successful. Mm -hmm. And that means that the faculty have to be trained to be able to support the students. So I do see funding agencies really taking a leading role in that space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's important. Yeah. yeah. So Maria, I, I, as far as the National Academy of, of Sciences, Medic, uh, Sciences Engineering and <laughs> Medicine, medicine uh, do you see any, any kind of shifts like that, that that you're aware of? I know that's not really exactly what you do. But in terms of in terms of funding and and make some requirements like this. So the the thing that comes to mind uh, in terms of looking at the incentive structure is particularly at the national level, um, is that yes, I think that uh, it is important to make sure that funding agencies and stuff right the the purse strings are gonna are gonna sh cause shifts, mm -hmm. and if you tie various incentives to the research funding um, that will work. Mm -hmm. That does cause things, uh, I think one of the best examples of that is probably NSF's broad broadening participation initiative, right? Mm -hmm. um, it, when it initially came out, people were pretty um, upset with having to you know, add additional information into all mm -hmm. of their grants that they were sending in. It's now standard practice. It is something that people at least consider sometimes it's rote boilerplate, but a lot of times people actually do put thought into it, and I do think it's started to shift the needle a little bit in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, I will say that we, we released a report uh, last year on uh, the biomedical and behavioral sciences workforce, uh, early career researchers, basically anything that falls underneath the NS uh, NIH umbrella. Mm -hmm. And one thing that that committee looked at was all of the recommendations, or many of the recommendations that have been made by various committees within the National Academies as well as elsewhere over the past 25 years or so, and who, which actors had been recommended to do which actions and what the follow through on those were. Um, and many, as you probably expect, recommendations went to NIH. Mm -hmm. A lot of people said, you know, if NIH just did this, the system would get better. Mm. Um, and I think one of the things that maybe surprised the committee a little was how many of those recommendations NIH followed through on. NIH has done a ton of work mm -hmm. to shift the system from their perspective. The actors and stakeholders who actually haven't done as much are the institutional leadership, the faculty, the PIs. Um, they can also do take steps and move needles mm -hmm. forward. And some of them, yes, will move faster when they're attached to purse strings, but some of it is a matter of doing self-reflection, a matter of doing institutional policy change themselves. Right. Um, and I think that it does take an entire ecosystem. It takes a broad uh, breadth to actually engage with these mm -hmm. uh, issues. And you can't just always lay it back on the, the national level, the, right. the funders to mm -hmm. move. Right. Yeah. So, so I think it, probably the, the best tactic is multiple levels from yes. the top 
from grassroots and everything in between. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of on, on that subject, I want to come back to something that Bill was talking about. So you, you mentioned, you know, talking about the top 50 universities in the US. Now, what about smaller universities and institutions that maybe don't have the resources that some of the, the large ones have? And, uh, you know, what, what do they do? What are the sort of what are they able to do and what should they be aiming at as their top priorities? Uh, would you think, you know, what changes can they make that will be most impactful? With respect to the mentoring function? Uh, with respect to really to, to all of it, you know, changing, changing this climate and, and, and graduate education. Well, one of the reasons that those institutions are vitally important is because they tend to have students who end up working in the same zip code. Mm. So the national universities, people are global. Mm -hmm. They come to Wash U or Duke. They're from all over the world. They may go back to where another country. They may, mm -hmm. but they're probably not going to stay in Raleigh, Durham, or or or, or St. Louis. They're going to go somewhere else. Regional institutions tend to embrace uh, people who are more indigenous to the places where they are. And so, to me, um, they're smart. In the, if if they're smart, and many of them are, they're engaged with local uh, businesses and commerce in such a way that they can begin to blend uh, in successful ways uh, the pure study of the science they're engaged in with whatever the industry is mm. and their unique opportunities for career development. We actually could learn some things mm. from that kind of partnership mm -hmm. in terms of, it's, 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 it's rather, it's, it's a, it used to be a really big deal in engineering to have those kind of partnerships not as much as it used to be. Mm -hmm. And I think that those are some of the things that the public, if you look at some of the AAU surveys, that they don't think we're really engaged in things that are relevant, even though we really are. Mm -hmm. um, but they want to see that. And I think those are some lessons we could actually learn from some of the schools that we consider to be regional and maybe not peers on a national level, but actually they're much more innovative and they, and they can change faster. More flexible. They're mm -hmm. actually yeah. much more flexible than we can be. Right. They're just under-resourced. Mm -hmm. And so with, the, uh, with state funding going down in many places and the like, they, they have to innovate in order to stay uh, mm. in business. And so I think they're lessons for us to learn, actually. Mm -hmm. So similarly, uh, I have a catchphrase. We've got a report for that. Um, but we, we, we did release a report at the very beginning of this year on minority serving institutions, actually, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is another group of institutions that are, tend to be under-resourced um, and tend to have very local or, as you were saying, indigenous mm -hmm. student bodies. Um, and there are a lot of lessons learned that can be pulled from how those institutions really build climates and cultures um, and engage with their local business partnerships and to really develop a, a useful and functional uh, STEM uh, workforce systems. Mm -hmm. um, it's something on the order of one-fifth of all STEM graduates, I believe, in the United States are out of MSIs. Mm -hmm. um, more uh, MSIs, more percentage-wise at MSIs are in STEM than at other institutions. Oh, so it's it's ridiculous that we you know by and large and I'm using very broad brushes here are sort of dismissive of the capabilities mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. minority serving institutions. Well, I um, would, and I, w I would also add to that I think that sort of going back to what Bill said, you know, 
a lot of the smaller institutions really maximize teaching and learning practices, mm -hmm. mentoring practices, student advising structures, just due mm -hmm. to yeah. the sheer number of students and the more specific focus on teaching for some of those institutions. And so where schools like ours may be very research-centric, a lot of times I've seen some very positive partnerships that have emerged where faculty will work, um, where it's, you know, it's, it's not about sort of one school going in saying we want to teach you X. It's about looking at where the strengths are at each mm -hmm. institution and sort of synergistically combining them to make uh, new opportunities for trainees. And I know that, I mean, one example that I'm, that's coming to mind for me right now is we have a preparing future faculty program at Duke. And I know that for a lot of the students who are very interested in a career in teaching, um, we really partner with a lot of those smaller institutions that are around us um, in the area to mm. have the, the students to be able to go in to really learn to engage with students in that way. So I think that everyone has a role to play. It's mm -hmm. not just the top institutions. Um, it's not just, like you were saying, it's not just specific funders. We're right. all part of the ecosystem that's going to create to the culture shift you're talking about. Right. Right. So I'm going to come back to something that Maria was talking about. You're feeding me all my segues. <laughs> I, 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 try, think, I try. Thank you. The segue queen. Yeah. Um, and that was minority institutions, but also um, the, some of the issues actually that you touched on as well, Sherilyn, um, gender equity, um, diversity, equity and inclusion, and also mm -hmm. interdisciplinarity. So how do we bring these in? How do we make these changes? Because I feel like they can be very difficult subjects, um, both in um, sort of moving the needle, but also in, in getting faculty to understand the issues yeah. and recognize maybe uh, unconscious biases that they might have. Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing I want to say about that, it goes back to something that Maria said earlier, which is I don't see any of those topics as tangential to any part of this conversation. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, I think that if any of us are going to purport ourselves to be professionals in this space, we should know how to engage in these topics. If, if we, science is the most collaborative industry in the world. Mm. If we can't work with people that have different ideas than we do or are from different places, have different educational backgrounds, then how are we making sure science is as innovative as it can possibly be, right? So mm -hmm. I think that will be my first point is that I really see these as tenets of professionalism more so than uh, specific topics that are um, added on to the fundamental curriculum of sort of what it means to be trained as a scientist. I think that a big part of making the changes in these areas is increasing self-awareness. And mm -hmm. I know that that might sound um, like a very basic you know, thing mm -hmm. to say, but, but you, know, it's, you, you might be surprised at the number of institutions that I work with nationally, and I've heard this from a number of my peers who are sort of engaged in the same space where you talk to faculty and they'll say, things are great here. We, mm -hmm. we don't have any issues here. And then I look at the data, and the data says that 85% of the faculty in that department are white men. Uh, but then I'm hearing from the faculty that there's no issue with gender uh, parity or with diversity or anything else. And so, so part of it is for us to decide what do we really care about? If, if we say that these issues are, are central to uh, the development of the most holistic scientific enterprise we can make, are we really committed to that? Um, do, are we practicing initiatives that are actually allowing us to engage in equitable practices? And that's going all the way from graduate admissions to faculty search committees. Mm -hmm. So I think the first step is, is really having that self-awareness and really deeply exploring, even if it's within sort of local communities, um, and I'm talking specifically about graduate departments and programs, really articulating 
What are our values? What do we stand for? Are we engaging in practices that actually allow these areas to grow and to blossom? Mm -hmm. um, if, we, if we are not, how do we partner with individuals that can help us to build capacity in this area so that we can actually do these things? But, but if we don't all have the awareness about where we currently are, and again, that can be gained not only through sort of taking workshops and doing things like that, but also just going back to the data. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of people who I've talked to nationally who have sort of told me one thing that's happening at their institution, and then I look at the data and there's a very different story there. Mm -hmm. So if we really are talking about how to make these changes, I think really having a, a deep level of knowledge about where things currently stand and where you want to go is really important to mm -hmm. be a first step. And is the data being collected? So I think that a lot of institutions are doing a better job now than they were before. Mm -hmm. When we were writing the consensus study for graduate education for the National Academies, one of the recommendations we came out with was that it would be wonderful if there was a more transparent and sort of standardized mechanism for data to be publicly shared and also in a way that's standardized so that you can see data from different institutions. It'll give mm -hmm. students more agency as they're you know looking where they want to go for graduate school and things of that nature. So. Internally, the data is always there. Mm -hmm. um, it comes down to how, how much the leaders are willing to make it available and transparent and, you know, frankly, to prioritize making it something that is used mm -hmm. to inform the practice. And, mm -hmm. and this, I think, is something that has dramatically shifted in the last decade mm -hmm. or so, right? So when I first joined the National Academies, I, the National Academies reports are well known for saying we need more data. Um, I think that when we would used to talk about a lot of these subjects, it was there is no way that we know what is going on across fields except for possibly the University of Michigan Rackham School, mm -hmm. uh, which was one of the first that started really collecting data on their grad, stu grad students. But I think it is becoming more and more and more well done, well publicized, mm -hmm. and well understood that this is what's happening. And I think in the past couple of years in particular, that has started to just curve up as uh, more students, more prospective grad students are starting to demand it as well. Right. Mm -hmm. Bill, any thoughts on inclusion? It's all about the mirror. <laughs> you have to hold yeah. the mirror up. Mm. And the mirror is, is done with data. And, and I think it starts with who, who's actually even in the studies we're doing. Mm -hmm. not, mm. not just you know, who the faculty are, like literally how much science was built on studies that were not appropriate. Right. Mm. Yeah. I mean, really. So, so just when you, so when I start my conversations with my colleagues, I say, "Remember, you were part of that, mm. right? So you didn't have a mirror up, right. and when you put the mirror up, then you can look at the totality of the system in such a way that maybe people might be able to grasp that there are problems, or it's not as inclusive, or the equity principles that they espouse aren't really happening in ways that they think are happening." Mm -hmm. And I think that's a huge, huge deal. I mean, even things like, uh, you know, the GRE. I, I talked to a math department colleague. I said, you require the GRE math examination, just the actual quantity, the regular GRE for math. I said, how would you need that? If mm -hmm. I've taken advanced calculus and used Rudin's book, and I have an A in the course, and the person who wrote my rec said that this person mastered Rudin, which is necessary, for doing a PhD in math, I would expect you to have a very high score on the GRE in the, in the math section, which is about bounded at about the algebra two. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. Is that That's actually right. telling you anything right. about the mm -hmm. candidate? So why would you put a barrier to entry up that really isn't calibrated toward what you really want to do here? Right. Yeah. Oh, well, we, we're <laughs> used to doing it that way, right? right. But I, I think that's the kind of conversations that we have to have with folks. Right. So how do you deal with somebody who doesn't want to look in the mirror? In, well, I'm in, I'm in a money business because I'm a grad dean. Mm -hmm. It's about saying, hey, do you want money? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you want money, there are some things I need you to think about mm. and at least acknowledge in such a way that I can get that you have been thinking about this. At bare minimum, I mean, you don't want to rule in, in, by tyranny, but the point right. is that these are professionals, all data-centric people. Mm -hmm. What is the data saying? Right. And so I think that's the way you have to approach it. And it, it is uncomfortable at the beginning, to be quite frank. Mm -hmm. But I think my colleagues around the country are getting used to it. The data transparency, the AAU de mm -hmm. de provost actually put forth that if you go to our website now, it's all up anyway. Mm -hmm. And I've said that these surveys that are happening with AAU mm -hmm. may soon become public at some point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's only going to be a matter of time before a set of presidents say, mm -hmm. let's put it all out there. Right. Yeah. And that includes the climate issues that you've been yeah. discussing. That includes the mentoring function. All that could become public, in which time everything's exposed. Right. And I think we should get our act together before all of that happens. <laughs> Yep, bringing light to things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely helpful. Mm -hmm. Sherilyn, any, any yeah, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think, you know, I always say when you're, you know, talking about some faculty that may be a little um, reserved or maybe not uh, jumping at making these sorts of initiatives become reality, mm -hmm. I always try to operate from the perspective that, you know, 95% of the world, I'd like to believe, are people who are good people that are doing the best that they, you know, mm -hmm. what they perceive to be the best that they can do. And so to me, part of holding that mirror up that we're talking about is helping them to see how their own practices are impacting their students and impacting the ecosystem. And I think that that mm -hmm. is part of the self-awareness because if you live in a space where you're in the power position, regardless of whether that's because of the rank that you hold, the administrative position that you hold, your race, your gender, et cetera, you might not have to live in a space where you're thinking about how your actions are impacting others, but that may be something that's a very regular practice for people who are not in the power mm. position. And so helping people to think more holistically about how they're impacting their students, I have found that's been something that's been very effective because most faculty that I've worked with, and I think you know a lot of, a lot of colleagues, like you said, across the country, not just at Duke, really do wanna do what's best for their students. And if they know that something they're doing is impeding success mm -hmm. or is preventing the students from being productive, which also impacts their own research productivity with them being a PI, usually at that point, they're willing to listen. And data is key. I mean, because at that point, it's not subjective. Right. You can tell me everything about the way that you think something's going or your perception of something. But if the data says otherwise, then the only way to ameliorate data is to design an experiment where you can test different variables and see which one is, leads you to the outcome that you want. And mm -hmm. so I think that data is huge, but, but also bringing up what's happening with the students and the people that faculty and leaders are responsible for. Mm -hmm. I will add to that that I think the another key element is not just pointing out what's wrong, but pointing out or providing a solution. Mm -hmm. um, there is a tendency to highlight a flaw 
and then just yell and scream about the flaw. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that we're, we're, we have science, we have backing to provide the information about what the next step is. So the first step really is to provide awareness, but we can give information about what is the next mm -hmm. idea, what is the training that you can do, what are the effective professional development opportunities, and to actually give those engagements available, um, whether they are on campus, whether they are online. Um, I think that those, those exist. Mm -hmm. and we should not shy away from advertising and engaging with them as much as possible. Yeah, and I would say one of the quickest ways to remove agency from your constituents, whether it's students or faculty, is to put them in a space where they're sort of castigated and told all the things that's wrong and then sent off to try to fix it without right. having any yeah. you know, clear concept right. of, a, like you mentioned earlier, not knowing a best practice or not knowing how to engage. So I think that, um, in addition to providing resources, it's also highlighting the things that they are doing well so that they can also engage in peer mentoring with, with their colleagues as well. So it's got to be a balance of getting constructive feedback, but also providing solutions and also um, highlighting strengths and accentuating those positives in different ways across graduate programs. Mirrors show good things. They do. <laughs> That's true, yeah. But the, the tension is within department variation might be greater than across department variation. Yes. I and so, so yeah. understanding that that there are assets within a unit, but they, but there's tremendous variation in that unit. Right. And what you're trying to do is get a density or concentration of excellence within a unit. Mm -hmm. And that's the that's the hard work of mm. department chairs, mm -hmm. deans, provost types, where you're trying to build that density and strength within a unit around climate. Provosts may be concerned about research productivity and things of that sort, but all of them coming together with that kind of density is really the hard work of higher education mm -hmm. leadership and the faculty. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we, we have talked a lot about what faculty can do to change what the higher levels can do, but is there anything that grad students can do to precipitate change? You know, how can they stand up and say, this is what I want? Mm -hmm. So oh, yeah. one of the things that actually, and I will answer your question, I promise. But uh, <laughs> okay. after the report, Sherilyn and many of the committee members uh, went on sort of a road show to talk about how to engage these ideas that came at the 3,000 foot level, 30,000 foot level, mm -hmm. down to the uh, ground level. And I think one of the things that we all noticed was that grad students were really the ones who were picking up the report the most. Mm -hmm. They were really trying to activate the ideas, the recommendations in it. And there are recommendations that are directed directly at the graduate student population themselves. And it involves sometimes simple, sometimes perhaps not as simple tasks as like have that open discussion with your PI or find a mentor who is not your uh, um, principal investigator to engage and talk about other uh, career pathways. Um, to, if you're a prospective grad student, vote with your feet in many instances. Mm -hmm. Look for that uh, school or institution that has the, the data and information that is out there and actually try and engage that. Organize across different departments and, and try and develop what you can do as the graduate students on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, those were the, was, was suggested sort of at the national level, but mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I, and I think I would add to that, we talk a lot about students in the here and now, but I think a lot of times people forget that in a few short years, the students are going to be the ones who are leading the biomedical workforce and the scientific enterprise. So mm -hmm. I think that one of the things that I've seen really empower students and help them to have more agency is to engage in as much training and knowledge gain as they can while they're getting their PhD. Mm -hmm. So, you know, engage in leadership training, you know, take advantage of things to improve communication skills, take workshops on navigating challenging situations and difficult conversations, do things that will not only enhance your future, future professionalism, but also perhaps give you skills and resources to better navigate the space you currently occupy. And I also think that the more agency students have, the better. So the more students have opportunities to mentor locally if they are you know, mentoring undergraduate students and graduate students in the lab, if advisors have things set up like mentoring compacts where students and faculty can sit down and both talk about what their expectations of one another are at the beginning of the relationship, Things like that can help students to find their voice a bit more. Right. And it still respects the hierarchy of training, but it sort of helps to eliminate some of the nefarious aspects of power dynamics that make students feel like they can't speak up. Mm -hmm. So there are tools that are out there. Um, I mentioned earlier, I know Steve Lee and others have really focused, I think Bruce Beeren also uh, have done work on thinking about this concept of mentoring up, where mm -hmm. students find more of a voice in their relationship with their mentor and in their career development as they're better anticipating their own needs and articulating what they need so that the institutions can be responsive to that. Right. And there have been lots of surveys that have been administered recently as well to sort of address some of these things. Mm -hmm. That's great, and I think the individual development plans are, yep. are really helpful for that because kind of, as we were talking about earlier, the, the, the data matters and that is very much data-centric. Mm -hmm. and, and I always tell faculty also, you know, a lot of these are templates that come out that are very useful, but faculty can also use those at a starting point. Um, so, you know, some faculty have said, I've tried to use these, um, they haven't gone the way that I wanted, and I always encourage them to make sure that they're making them their own, they're pulling from their own strengths with how they're engaging with the students. But, but having something that is a standardized practice that students know they can count on and rely on to be able to discuss careers in a very non-judgmental, non-loaded mm -hmm. environment, um, that's really important for honesty to be able to be exchanged in both directions. Mm -hmm. So that actually, that'll bring me nicely to the, the last question that I have in the, the, the few minutes remaining. Mm -hmm. And that is, are we properly preparing graduate students for a full range of careers? Um, I think we've touched on this a little bit uh, during the hour, um, but you know, these would include careers outside of the normal academic track uh, and a very broad range of careers. I mean, I, I trained as a PhD scientist in molecular biology and I'm I'm in publishing, and mm -hmm. uh, it was a career that I didn't really consider. I knew about journalism and I knew about editing, but not what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. um, so, so Bill, maybe I can I can go to you. What you know, you you talked earlier, you know, before we were on set about um, you know asking p new new students coming in whether they thought they would uh, go into an academic track, and finding that that has shifted over the last few years. Right. When I first started as dean, you know, ninety percent of the room raised their hand that they wanted to be professors, and then I, I would always ask, have you looked at the Chronicle of Higher Education? Of course they don't even know what that is, but right. <laughs> um, <coughs> you know, that there, there aren't the jobs that, that used to be there. Um, you're thinking about an age that's gone by, and you need to be uh, keenly aware of the wealth of opportunities that are gonna be afforded you, and we've tried to put systems in place at our place, and many other universities now are partnering with career centers and local industry to, to really uh, sort of build up awareness and 
provide professional mentoring opportunities mm -hmm. in environments outside of the academy where possible. The other thing that you have to remember is that some students are, not all students are PhD students. Mm -hmm. And the proliferation of master's and professional degree programs related to STEM, particularly analytics-oriented programs, is through the roof. They're happening in business schools, they're happening in arts and sciences, they're happening in design schools, everywhere there are really STEM degrees at the, at the master's level that are clearly focused on career placement. Mm -hmm. They're not thinking about academic opportunities at all. And that number is going through the roof. Mm -hmm. The number of master's degree programs in the country is just growing in master's students yeah. as well. So I think a lot of students who want grad school are picking that option. And I, as I said off air, a lot of students are happy to leave after a qualifying exam. If I'm in computer science, I'll take that master's degree on your buck and go get a job. Mm -hmm. So I do think students are aware and, and uh, universities are changing their ecology to line up with really what's happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we actually have several standardized practices now at Duke. Um, one is a doctoral academy. That's sort of a weak, immersive, deep dive for students to gain skills and knowledge about some of these other areas you refer to pertaining to careers. Mm -hmm. uh, my colleague Mohammed Noor teaches a class called Bio 101 that gets starts to delve into, um, you know, thinking about the transferable skills that are required to be a successful scientist, but also different careers that could be associated with that. And I hear more and more that different schools are actually making this part of the actual curriculum yeah. and not just saying, okay, well, if you don't want to go into academia, then you're on your own. Good right. luck. I think that a lot of institutions are hiring individuals whose specific job it is to um, bring that sort of information in and support the faculty so that they can, you know, better train the students to make sure they're getting everything they need to be engaged in that way. And remember data transparency. Yeah. Mm. All the career placements across our programs are online now. You yeah. can go to our website and mm -hmm. see where people are getting jobs. There's no getting around it in the STEM fields. You know, a large majority of the students are not going to the academy. They're going to non-academic jobs that are, allow them to do all kinds of things with their scientific backgrounds. Mm -hmm. yeah, so that, that term alternative career is really a complete it's misnomer. Just a it's just a career. <laughs> right. we, took the, we took the term alter, alternative is off. Actually, yeah. the it's academic cool. job is the alternative career right. if we wanted to be specific. Yeah. The reality is the majority of people are outside of the academy. Right. And, and you know, one thing I always like to say is, as faculty, we have to also show the joys of being in academia as well. I think right. that there was the pendulum shift to where, like you said, so many students have gone in the other direction. I think that all of these careers are great options, academia included. It just depends on what your own proclivity is for success. And so. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that um, all, I'm, I'm really glad that all the students are feeling like they have, you know, sort of a really strong voice now where they can explore all of these areas and find what works best for them. Academia mm -hmm. included. So yes. all of them, <laughs> all of these are great options for students. Yes. Yeah. 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 Right, great. Well, um, unfortunately we are out of time now, so um, I'm going to have to just say thank you so much to our panel uh, for their fantastic insights. Uh, Dr. Sherilyn Black, uh, Dr. Bill Tate, and Mr. Uh, Maria Dahlberg. Uh, please look out for more webinars in this series available at webinar.sciencemag.org. Again, thank you so much to the fantastic panel. It's really been great having you, you all thank here. You. Thank you. Um, and thank you to Foundation Ibsen for their kind sponsorship of today's discussion. Goodbye. Sherilyn. Thank you. Thank Sean. you, Bill. Thank you so much. I can't reach you. <laughs>